Hello, my name is Aaron Davis, and I'm working on a project called MetaMask.io. It is an Ethereum identity management service. And today I'm bringing you a special edition of Software Engineering Daily, and I'd like to talk about Ethereum a little bit. Uh, in the past few episodes, we've covered Bitcoin from different angles, and uh, I want to talk about uh, one project that I'm really passionate about, and that's Ethereum. So let's start with the basics. Uh, let's start with blockchains. Uh, what is a blockchain uh, as a data structure? Um, well, it's very much what it sounds like. It is a bunch of blocks linked together in a chain. Um, you can relate this to a linked list or sort of a re reverse linked list, a linked stack, where new items added later point to the previously last item in the chain. This, uh, in, in a more general fashion, we you might call this a Merkle tree. Uh, even if you haven't heard of that term, you've probably used it before. Um, they're very common in in various kinds of software that, as software engineers, we use daily. For example, Git. If you think of all the the hashes of the Git commits, those are nodes in the tree. So the way uh, a Merkle tree is formed is that uh, a node is labeled with the hash of its content and all its links to other nodes. So if you have two children here. The names of those two children will hash together and give you the name of the parent. Uh, this further uh, this further abstracts into what you might call a Merkle DAG or directed acyclic graph, um, and that's really the only difference is there's not a single uh, root. You you can have many starting points, um, but the point is these these nodes uh, point to other nodes and using their, their named hash. Uh, now the second letter in there, A, acyclic, is, is an interesting property that arises. Um, some data structures that intend to be acyclic may do this through validation or something. So if you find a circle, then you find a loop, you, you would just say this is an invalid version of that data type. Uh, but this one arises um, by the hashes. So if you were to try to construct a, a ring, you would need to know what the hash was going to be. You would need to perform a hash collision because the parent needs uh, needs the name of the child in order to point to it. So usually the, or always, the, the items must come afterwards. So I know the hash and now I can point to it. But then when I'm trying to construct that, I don't know the label of that thing. Um, perhaps that's a bit of a tangent, uh, but I think that's a fun thing to think about. Uh, Continuing on, uh, what, what else is in a, a blockchain? Well, you know, I talked about the blocks, but what's inside the blocks? Uh, so you have that reference to the previous block. Uh, so we've added on a new block, um, and it, it, it has a reference to the previous block. In, in addition to that, it has a list of um, all transactions, transactions in the case of um, you know Bitcoin or similar systems, um, and you know any other any other kind of extra data you'd want in there. So in the case of Bitcoin, uh, new blocks are mined uh, approximately every 10 minutes. Um, so what does that process look like? Uh, so now we're talking about uh, Bitcoin's consensus protocol. Um, and this is a type of proof of work, as it's, been, uh, as it's known. And uh, what it is, is it's, it's really a spam prevention mechanism. We, we have all these nodes all over the globe. Uh, 
you know, separated by space and time. Um, and if they're all trying to make changes, they're all trying to update this uh, single version of that we know as the blockchain, this is the current state of the system, if they're all trying to update that at once, and the, the ordering of events is extremely important, uh, everyone's going to end up with a, a jumble of, of different orderings, and it's going to be hard to reconcile that uh, globally. So one solution to that is, is to basically make it arbitrarily difficult uh, to submit changes to the system. Now, anyone can submit transactions, and the transactions are kind of the changes, right? They're saying, I'm going to reduce my account balance by this and increase that person's account balance by that. Um, but those, the transactions on their own don't immediately affect the state of the system. Uh, the transactions need to be put into a block, and that block needs to be added to the blockchain in order to you know, officially um, change the state of the system. Uh, right, so how do we make it arbitrarily difficult? Uh, it's basically a needle and haystack problem. Um, we, uh, you just, uh, you take the hash of the block, all its contents, you know, its reference to the previous block, its timestamp, uh, all those transactions, and uh, a nonce, a random number there at the end. And you hash all that together, um, and you get, of course, a random number as the output. Now we then compare this random number against a um, a difficulty target. So if you think uh, is this random number less than a thousand or whatever, so the the miners, the validators in the system, um, they're trying to guess this um, this random number. Um, uh, they you know they make a guess of a random number. They hash it. Um, you get an output. They check that output against that uh, that difficulty target. Is it less than this number? No. Okay. Uh, try a different random number. Hash again. Is it? No. And back and forth and back and forth, thousands of millions, billions of times. And eventually you find one, just out of sheer luck, that is uh, correct. And, um, and so then you can uh, say, hey, I've solved a block. And you send that out to the network. And everyone else can check very easily. Oh, yes, that, you know, the hash of that content. Oh, there, there it is below the difficulty target. Wonderful. Um, so I'll add this onto the blockchain. And uh, that is how a block is mined. Um, now, of course, that uh, magic number finding process was rather intensive. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the, whoever's doing that work is paying for electricity and, and computer time and all this. Um, and so we uh, pay them back for their efforts uh, via a mining reward as well as uh, any transaction fees associated with those transactions. Um, so what is a blockchain fork? A fork would be where two people have uh, come up with a solution for the next block, and of course built into those blocks is the reference to the parent, you know, the block that they come immediately after. Um, and so since the, the solution, the magic number solution, um, involves the hash of the content, you can't change what block it's supposed to come after, because if you change that, the, the output the ha of the hash function would be different, and then the, the uh, solution wouldn't match anymore. So then we have these, these two blocks coming out of uh, a parent, and, and then what do you do, right? How do you, which, which path do you take? Well, at this point we can't quite decide, but as we wait for the next blocks to come in, 
once each of those, you know, uh, all the miners in the network are going to pick one of those blocks and, and mine on top of that. And when, when they find a, yet another block, they'll attach it onto those. And the way we resolve that, that fork is we just pick the longest one. So even if uh, another is found on the first one, and then two more are, lit, are quickly found on the other one, we'll then switch to the other one. And um, so when we talk about a fork of the blockchain, that's what we're talking about, is switching back and forth between these branches. So can, uh, can a blockchain represent a state transition system? Uh, yes, this is pretty much what it's uh, designed for. If you, uh, each, in each block, you know, there's a series of transactions, and these transactions can just be thought of as, as deltas to the state. So in the case of Bitcoin, you're, you're just thinking about account balances. You can just think of like uh, removing some uh, balance from here and giving it to someone else. Um, in a, you know, any other kind of state machine you wanted to represent there, uh, you could just uh, keep adding deltas in the form of transactions. So even yet, before we get to Ethereum, there's, a, there's an interesting history from Bitcoin to where we are now. And uh, so as Bitcoin was taking off, gaining popularity, people were saying, wow, this is really cool and this, this works. We're able to come to consensus on, on this document. You know, in the case of Bitcoin, it's this public ledger. Um, but what, what else could we use this technology for? You know, there's a bunch of things that we have trouble coming to consensus about uh, or we rely on some strange mechanisms. Um, currently, be it some oligarchy of domain name registration or something like this, you know, how do we solve that problem? And uh, specifically domain name registration, um, a project called Namecoin uh, tried to attack that problem. And so Namecoin is a fork of Bitcoin. Uh, it's its own network. And it, it's essentially just a key value store. Um, but it's this, uh, this, the blockchain provides this sort of single source of truth. And so for some key, this could be, you know, your domain name. Um, it resolves to some value, and that value could be, I don't know, an IP address, or it could just be a uh, public key or something like this. Namecoin was built to be rather general purpose, and I applaud them for that. Um, and th there are various other projects like this. Where, where can we take Bitcoin? You know, this, this is sort of the beginning of the Bitcoin 2.0 space. Um, some other things were, were colored coins. Colored coins is a notion you take take a, a Bitcoin and you say, okay, now this Bitcoin represents something else. This represents like uh, the deed to my house or the title to my car or whatnot. Um, me then Metacoins uh, is the name to refer to any coin built onto a system that already has a coin. So like um, with Bitcoin, there's sort of a system built on top of it. Uh, there's a few systems built on top of it. One of, a, one of them is called Counterparty and it lets you to create uh, sort of additional tokens and uh, and those tokens can be all kinds of things and they can have their own mechanics but th the idea is that you have now we have this additional token that sits on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, Bitcoin scripting. So the Bitcoin system works via a very simple scripting language and uh, it's very intentionally simple. The point is that these these transactions should only do a couple things. It's really about moving money around and that's about it. Now you can set up some special mechanics where you want like uh, 
and some number of signatures or, or some, some various exotic signature schemes. But the main point is just moving money around. Um, there's another term used, like a, an app coin. This, it's not thrown around a lot, but it's referring to some blockchain that's a little bit more than just a, just a currency. So, like, uh, like Namecoin, for example. It's a coin required in the system to pay, say, the validators, you know, the miners. But it itself is, is not necessarily the point of the system. Now, all, all these projects were, were great, and they, they kind of pushed the space forward. They uh, got us thinking about all the different things we could do. But there was, there was one problem, is that when you, when you tried to build a new network from scratch, um, not only do you have to uh, you know, do the software development and come up with a, a secure protocol that actually achieves what you're trying to do, you also have to convince a bunch of other people that this is a good idea and they should run validators and whatnot. And you might need to convince them to move away from some other project and to validate for yours. So all these projects start uh, competing with each other um, and they're kind of hard to bootstrap. And, and so people began to think, well, like, what if we just had a general purpose blockchain, a general purpose and consensus network, and then you can build whatever decentralized project you want on top of that without even having to think about uh, the complexities of, of coming to consensus. And that's basically what Ethereum is. So Ethereum is a blockchain with uh, a Turing-complete programming language built on it. Um, what, is, what does that mean, right? This is, so this is different than Bitcoin. Bitcoin's scripting system is very specific. It's trying to solve this very specific case of, of moving money around. But in Ethereum, it needs to be able to do anything that the creators haven't even thought of yet. So, uh, how do you, how do you do this? And so they've created this uh, simple virtual machine that uh, onto which you can write whatever data you need to the blockchain, um, and that would let you build a token or something like this. Uh, for example, the the Namecoin project I mentioned before you could implement something like this in just a few lines of code because uh, now when you're programming this you just have to think of it as a single machine and so you just set up a key value store and maybe a reference of who is the owner of each key and and that's it you don't have to think about consensus, the protocol, how people talk on the network or anything like this so I've talked about how Ethereum can help the sort of bootstrapping process of building a decentralized application on top of this generic blockchain. But there's a there's a couple things more than that. So now we we've you know reduced the amount of work that you need to do to get a decentralized app out there. Um, you we also now don't have networks competing with each other, and actually quite the opposite. Now they can talk to each other directly on, on top of the blockchain. My Namecoin project that's taking in these, that's, uh, you know, storing these, uh, authoritatively storing these key value pairs, um, we can now have some other project that's running on top of the blockchain call into that Namecoin and then update the, re uh, update the registry as needed. Um, so what's an example of, of something else that might be on the blockchain? Um, this is a fun one. Uh, DAOs, D-A-O's, uh, I've heard them defined as decentralized autonomous organizations or 
democratic autonomous organizations. And uh, really, it's just the notion of running an organization on the blockchain. Um, you know, so the, the rules of, of who can do what and how people um, interact in, in some official manner uh, is written in code, which is an interesting notion. And um, how if, if this is, if there's some money involved, you know, we can use the Ethereum currency, Ether, to, uh, to fund whatever project you're working on, but the rules can be set for how that money can be spent and who, who gets to decide uh, how that money is spent. Um, so some of, the, some, of these, uh, some of the projects that are currently under development on top of Ethereum uh, our uh, boardroom. So to make uh, managing a DAO and creating a DAO easier, um, some friends of mine are working on a project called Boardroom. Uh, you can find them on boardroom.to. And basically, it's a it's a software tool for uh, you know helping you create these DAOs. It's a collection of basically building blocks. And um, what what it would be like is is something that you can create proposals. These proposals might be uh, budget changes or adding people to the organization, removing people from the organization. Um, and you can set it up in, in some you know recursive hierarchical manner where um, uh, the organization can vote on funding for a subcommittee and that subcommittee could be composed of uh, other people and then they can uh, focus on some more specialized task and, and move money in one direction or another. Uh, you could also build these things in, in less hierarchical ways and maybe not use the voting system, use some other mechanism. It's uh, built to be very, very modular. Another example of an Ethereum project under development right now is Augur. Augur is a very fascinating project. This is a prediction market built on top of Ethereum. And this prediction market uh, basically lets you place bets on the future outcome of events. Um, one example on their webpage is uh, who's going to win the next uh, presidential election in the United States. Now, of course, no one knows the answer to that right now. I, I hope, anyways. Um, but uh, people certainly have their hunches, and um, you'd uh, be willing to make your bet. Uh, the idea here is that if you ask many, many people their sort of average answer is probably going to be close to the truth. Um, additionally, if some actors have some sort of additional inside information, they're probably going to be willing to bet large sums on that fact. Um, so through this mechanism, we sort of uh, try to tease out the, the shape of the future. This has a couple of secondary effects, which are really important as well. One is uh, we get um, contracts, smart contracts, can, can ask Augur about the, uh, the outcome of, of these predictions, both um, before and after the event. And uh, this helps smart contracts have access to information about the, the world, the state of the world, um, because they, they can't, you know, query Wikipedia or something like this. I mean, you could, uh, you could tell a smart contract, but is it in, does it uh, make sense for that smart contract to believe you? Um, in, in the case of Augur, it's, you know, casting a much wider net for, for getting a source of information. Uh, the, another effect is that uh, 
based on your reporting of the outcome events compared to the rest of the community, it's able to assign you a, a reputation value. This is how reliable this person correctly reports information. Um, and then other smart contracts could ask Augur what that value is if, uh, if they need to know something like that. But uh, speaking more in generally, what, what do smart contracts do? Um, you could somewhat relate them to a server. Now, this isn't a server that's going to be a workhorse and you know, doing work on your behalf. Um, and since all the data on the blockchain is open, anyone can audit that at any time, it's not really providing read access. Um, but it is providing write access, and that can be as arbitrarily complicated as you want. Uh, like in the case of the of DAOs uh, inside of Boardroom, only the the only way that uh, money can be moved around is if uh, a a vote is made and passed or something like this. Uh, the only way um, from the list of people that are members of that organization, the only way that can be changed is from uh, you know a, a successful proposal. Uh, however, you have that configured. So in that sense, it's uh, it provides a a right access to a public database. So how, how does that work? I mean, like how do, what is a smart contract? How do you build a smart contract? So a smart contract is, is kind of like a little program. It's like a, a, a closure, really. Um, and uh, you can build this as, uh, in, in, there's some higher level languages available. One of them is uh, Solidity, and this is being developed by Ethereum Core. Um, but and that gives you a nice uh, you know high level language to work with. But ultimately, it compiles down to EVM code. EVM is the Ethereum virtual machine, and it's the the code the opcodes is just this string of of binary really, um, and this comes in and runs through the the machine as part of your transactions. The transactions can have some monetary value that they're trying to transfer, um, but they can also have some data. And they can, uh, if they're pointed at a smart contract, they'll run the smart contract. Uh, now, so what kind of opcodes are there? So th these are instructions on what to do. And some of them are uh, just typical things you'd find in a stack-based virtual machine. You know, you have your math opcodes and whatnot. So like, put this number on the stack, put this other number on the stack, uh, take those two off, add them together, and put the result on the stack. These sorts of things. And then you can, you know, you have your, your if statements and, and all this. What's, uh, what's sort of unique to Ethereum is there are some opcodes for what is the uh, nonce for this block, what is the number for the block, the timestamp, um, send a transaction. Uh, so this is an interesting one, is uh, these contracts can make calls to other contracts that can make calls to other contracts. Now, it has to start with a human. It has to start with, you know, an external account. But um, once you trigger something running, it can, uh, who knows what depth it might run to. Uh, of course, you'll be paying the transaction fees, right? So we have this Turing complete language for the, that the virtual machine runs, you know, runs this code. How do, how do we, you know, solve fork bombs or, or uh, you know, infinite loops and whatnot. So Ethereum's solution to 
the halting problem is just to meter the opcodes. You have to say what is the max amount of money you're willing to spend on this call and max amount of ether. Um, and each time you do something adds to the stack um, and, and perform all these operations. They all have a, a price associated with them. And on every opcode that increments, 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 if you run out of money, then if you run out of money in the middle of a transaction run, well, state is rolled back. It doesn't let you just, uh, you know, run to the part right before that part you don't actually want to run. That would be an interesting attack vector. Um, no, in that case, state is rolled back, but you, uh, you're still paying the price of your computation. But in most cases, uh, computation will complete normally. Um, whatever state changes will, will happen, say uh, you've registered a name in the, in the name coin project. And and then um, you you pay for your computation and you go about your merry way. Uh, another opcode a smart contract has access to is who called me. One who initiated the transaction and who called me immediately. And this is important uh, for basically for identity. If a um, Again, with the name re registration, if you're if you're asking to uh, store a new value, uh, it needs to know who who is asking and are you the owner of that key. Um, and so I I talk about this in terms of identity. You, uh, in Bitcoin, this is mostly just talked about as your wallet. What's your wallet address? What's your wallet address? Um, but since uh, on top of Ethereum, there's so many different things you could do. Um, it's it's really more about your identity. Who is this that's trying to record a value? Who is this and what's their um, their auger reputation? Um, who is this that's voting in, in this uh, boardroom contract? And um, so this can be done in, in you know, the, very much like Bitcoin, where it's just your, your address, just your sort of uh, public key. Um, but it can also be done in more exotic ways. For example, I could have a proxy contract. This is a contract that's only usable by me and it holds the majority of my uh, my ether. And uh, anytime I want to interact with something else, uh, I basically step into this proxy contract, tell it to, oh yeah, send a message over here, I want to do this now, um, and bring this much money along with you. Uh, and what that enables you to do is to, to separate your your keys and your key management with uh, with your identity. So now I can have a fixed identity that's represented from that proxy contract. And when I, whenever I you know call into Augur and whatnot, it'll if it asks not who is the origin of the transaction, but who is the immediate caller, um, it will it will consistently find that proxy contract. And now I can take my keys and I can rotate them you know, monthly or something like this. And so I always have new key pairs and I'm always retiring my old keys so that I don't uh, lose them, they don't leak out to the internet in some way. Um, and, and so now we can sort of begin to separate uh, identity as key pairs and just uh, identity as a unique identifier on the network. Of course, um, working on MetaMask uh, identity is uh, a fun topic for me, and I could talk about that for a long time. Um, but let's uh, 
let's move on a little bit. Uh, oh, so I mentioned Ether kind of offhand. This is, so this is the currency or the crypto fuel of Ethereum. This is necessary to make the system run. Uh, again, un unlike Bitcoin, it's not just about a store of value. You can certainly do that too, but uh, enable to... In in, in order to engage in the in the uh, systems like boardroom, where you have this organization, you want to do voting, and whatnot, you need to pay for the the simple computation that's being performed, and you do that with ether. The mining process is currently similar to Bitcoin in that it's a proof of work system. However, it's made ASIC resistant. ASIC being a application specific integrated circuits. Uh, we, we saw this uh, in the Bitcoin space. As mining became profitable and the network grew and grew, people made specific hardware just for mining uh, Bitcoin. And maybe that sounds more efficient, but it ends up the, uh, being a very specialized task. And uh, you, you know, people have a lot of opinions about whether or not that is the direction they want um, validation of a decentralized network to go. And so um, the the mining process for Ethereum is a bit more is a bit more targeting commodity hardware. First of all, you need to do you need to run these transactions, so you need sort of a generic uh, computer. But uh, also to to kind of keep ASICs out of the game, there's uh, it's the problem has been the you know the mining problem has been made memory hard. You need currently like a, a gig of memory to, to solve the problem and that will increase linearly. Uh, Ethereum can be mined on GPUs and uh, to be competitive that is basically your only solution. Um, but mining is a, sort of its own thing. The You can use the system without being that engaged. So, what is it like to develop on top of Ethereum? The whole point of Ethereum is to be a platform and for people to build other things on top of it. Um, so, what does it mean to us as developers? Um, I, I mentioned before how you can sort of think of a smart contract as being a type of server that you can make a request against. Um, and and that makes sense because it's it acts like the back end. This is where we read the data from. And this is where we try to make uh, changes uh, to the data. So what about the front end? Uh, Ethereum Core has created a spec for dApps. dApps this is a jargon term that we use. Uh, dApps, D-apps, decentralized apps, dApps. Um, and so this, what the spec is basically, you have a normal HTML5 JavaScript app uh, with a slightly modified runtime environment. And that just means that there's an extra global in there, in the global namespace, which you can use to talk to the blockchain. Um, and so, similar to Bitcoin, you have this some wallet management software that you would download. Um, one, one project coming out of Ethereum Core is called Mist. It is a wallet manager and DEP browser. So they have you know a fork of WebKit or something like this, and you can load uh, basically front ends. You can load web apps that are meant to talk to the blockchain, and it has access to this global that it enables uh, you know querying about the state of the blockchain and suggesting transactions for the user to make.
since uh, since it's a uh, you know uh, mostly a normal web app, you can uh, bring the same tools you you have now for your web development. And uh, uh, that said, there are a couple of new projects targeting specifically Ethereum development. Try to make that process a little smoother. Um, there's one called Embark, and there's another called Truffle. Um, some of the, the specific things that you need to know is when, it, you know, when you're talking to the blockchain, you need to know the address of the contract. So I have my, I have my boardroom DAO contract, and I need to ask about like what are the proposals that are on the table at the moment. Um, in order to ask that question, I need to know the location, the address of of that, and if I'm say developing against a test chain, you know we have this the main chain that's our production environment, and then we have our test chain for a rapid development, and so I'm not paying every time I want to make a test transaction or something like this. Um, the your addresses are ultimately going to be different in production and locally, so you need some tools to to tell you what those are going to be, um, and and things like uh, Truffle and Embark will help you out there. So you know, I I thought this was really exciting. Like, oh, this is great! I can build my web app. I can let's say you know I'll do a crowdfunding project, kind of like Kickstarter, but it's all decentralized. You know, when the when the funding is being collected, but it hasn't been distributed yet. We don't know if they're going to meet the funding deadline. It's all sitting inside of a smart contract, and the the money that smart contract holds is not accessible directly by anyone. No one has the keys to that collection of money, so it's it's secure in the interim, assuming the code is good. And, you know, someone hasn't made, like, a backdoor where they can run off with the money. Uh, and so this is this is great. I'm running a, a uh, you know, a crowdfunding project, and now I want to send it off to all my friends. Um, unfortunately, at this point, I might have to say, like, okay, go download the Myth software or something like this, and, and then I think my friends are probably already not listening. Uh, I, you know, this, this, I saw this as a problem early on, and I'm like, okay, uh, I need to solve that. This is an adoption problem, you know, this is a really a, a hurdle of accessibility. Uh, and so that's why I've created MetaMask. The idea of MetaMask is that you can get these, these dApps up and running in your normal browser without any installation. Um, and you can just link to them running. So if you wanna, if you're writing about this in a forum, uh, you know, you're sending a tweet to your friends, say, hey, funding my campaign, please fund my campaign, uh, you can just put a link to it there, running, talking to the blockchain right there in the browser. Um, and, and so that's, that's what I wanted to capture, is there's not, it might not be the most ideal situation, you're not running your node and helping the network or something like this, but you're able to just jump in and start using Ethereum right away. I know that was sort of a whirlwind of a, a bunch of different topics and uh, you know a lot of a lot of history. A lot of engineers put a lot of effort into some of those things that I just you know sort of lightly danced over. And I'm sure I made a, quite a few mistakes in there. Um, please you know let me know in the comments. Tell me apart. Um, but I, I hope that gave you a, a general overview of what's going on in Ethereum. Um, Jeff left me with one interesting question. It says, can Ethereum be used to create a preventative solution to malicious AI? Well, uh, this is a little out of the scope of the original idea of what uh, Ethereum was built for. But then again, Ethereum was built for things that 
it, it we don't know what it, it'll be used for. That's that's a good question. I personally don't know the answer, but um, let's see. A malicious AI. So this is an AI that's uh, decided to disobey orders, right? It's gone beyond our control, and um, you know why would it do that? Um, maybe it would be part of its uh, sort of trust mechanism, and it's decided that it cannot trust uh, the instructions it's given. It's decided it can't. Uh, trust us. So maybe we can try it via that angle. You know, well, like, how can we give this AI uh, a connection to the world that uh, it feels like it can trust? And maybe the blockchain could be a good place to sort of read sentiment of what's going on, who is who, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys. Um, and uh, and uh, maybe it would be less malicious if it had this uh, sort of place it could trust information from. Um, then again, uh, being a malicious AI, it would probably be really good at taking over machines and sort of acquiring access to computation. And if you have a significant portion of the world's computation, you could kind of write the blockchain however you wanted. Uh, that would be maybe a scary place to be in. Um, but um, what's not scarier than a malicious AI? There's one more thing I'd like to add, and this is um, where I think um, Ethereum is important. This is where I think Ethereum is going to go. Uh, what is, you know, I, I've worked with some of the technical aspects of it, and I kind of understand how it works um, in that regard, but like, what is its relation to society in, in the bigger picture? Uh, and that's a, a more difficult question. Um, the way we've seen um, Bitcoin sort of uh, disintermediate uh, financial transactions, uh, I think Ethereum will help us do that in a general way, and specifically in regards to networks. Right now, we have a a lot of um, we have a lot of sort of bastions of data and networks uh, for example you know we have we have the, the Facebook network and we have the Twitter network and we have the uber you know taxi service network and uh, none of those are really ours they're not owned by us we, we can use them but if we want to walk away let's say we don't like the maybe some of the the monitor, monitoring and data collection that's happening in those services so we can decide to walk away from them but then we lose all those connections um and so it, that just really shows that we don't own that network and so i think ethereum will help provide a network of identity reputation and, and really connections um that will that is that is ours that is public uh, of course, there's some current concerns with with privacy and whatnot, and not you don't need to put everything on the blockchain, but uh, the things that are that are important, I think you can. Not just the things that are important, but the things that are the things that need to be public and need to be understood um, uh, to to help gain trust between humans. Um, I think that kind of stuff you you want to put on the blockchain. And so, for example, um, 
what is the role of of Uber, the company? Like we have this network of people who need rides. We have this network of people that are willing to give rides in exchange for money. And in the middle, um, you know, maintaining the network um, and and maybe creating the the interfaces to the network. Uh, we have this company, um, and they take fifteen, twenty, thirty percent of of all the fees there. Um, and you know, and so what are they doing? What is their role there? In some cases, maybe they're uh, providing a level of of quality control. In some cases, they're providing uh, marketing or something like this. Um, but I think ultimately their role is not as important as the role of the people who need the rides and the people uh, and the role of the people providing the rides. So if you were to build a, a a system to disintermediate that, I think it would look a lot like Ethereum. I spoke earlier about how different applications built on top of the Ethereum can interact uh, with each other, and, and they don't have to compete for networks. And I think you'll you'll see this uh, also with with the various applications built on top of it. You know, I think you'll see this with this you know new uh, sharing economy, if you want to call it that. Um, where you have these these networks of uh, sellers on Amazon or people with uh, homes or, or rooms on Airbnb and people with cars on, on services like Uber. Um, you have these, these companies that sit in between that provide the interface and provide the network. And I think with systems like Ethereum, we'll be able to provide our own network and write our own rules. Uh, that's just some thoughts for me. Uh, thanks for listening. Cheers.